Well, good morning, everyone. And to those of you joining us online, welcome. Thank you uh, for joining us. I'd like to begin with just a few thank yous uh, before we get into our text this morning. But if you have a Bible, turn over to Romans chapter 10, and that's where we will be this morning. Uh, I want to say thank you to the elders here, to James Harris, Jaylee Jackson, Ken Kilgore, uh, for the opportunity to share God's Word uh, with you this morning and to come in in this setting. Especially want to say thank you to Tony Cloud, our minister here. Uh, he uh, asked if I would share with you the Word this morning and next week as well, and then a series of us will be uh, giving the message while he takes some time time away. But there's no greater honor. Those of you who uh, preach know what a gift it is uh, when a minister asks if you'll share a message. So thank you, Tony. What a what a gift this is. And uh, and, and thank you for uh, for being here and those of you joining us online. Thank you for taking time out of your week and setting aside this time to do something that's a reminder of normalcy. It's been a it's been a long year. In fact, uh, one year ago, I, uh, just reading through some of the journals that, sh- that show up in my mailbox, as a physician, we get uh, both medical journals, some of the ones that you may hear about in the media and nationally, and sometimes what we call throwaway journals, just kind of like newspaper-type articles. And in one of those throwaway journals, one year ago, just a little over one year ago, this is the article that showed up in one of those papers, that there was this mystery pneumonia in China that had health officials at the CDC on alert. That was my introduction to the fact that 2020, last year, was going to be a long year, and that this year would, again, be a long year. Now, from a medical professional standpoint, you need to know that there is a general sense of hope and relief, because we now see light at the end of this tunnel of the pandemic. Uh, But you and I have lived through uh, what is a historic moment in our lifetime and maybe in the last century or so, where we have together lived through a pandemic, which by definition is something that affects everyone in the whole world. And I wanted to say a special thank you to those of you who have been a part of keeping all of us connected to something that is real, to something that is normal, that is eternal. And that's a part of what we did here this morning. And all of you who each week have made sure that whether we joined from home or whether we were able to gather here, that we could gather safely, that we could take communion together, that we could hear God's word together, that we could sing together, that we could pray together, and that each week we could go through that cycle, which is a reminder of what is real and what is eternal. I think we should all uh, applaud Pat Andrews, who probably over the last year has preached more sermons, said more prayers, translated more songs than anyone else on the planet. <laughs> uh, his dedication to making sure that the Word of God is spread is, is admirable, and I appreciate the work that he has done too. But what a year it's been, and you would be right to say and to ask, is anybody in control of this? Who's going to get us through this pandemic, and who's going to save the world? And I'd like to introduce to you this this idea of what it means to be saved, what it means to rescue the world, and to specifically bring you to this passage in Romans chapter chapter 10. Now, when we talk about the word saved, which you will be introduced to in this passage, it's important to remember uh, that in the church setting, 
It's tempting to force upon this word saved a meaning that is common to us. Now, we use the word saved in many different ways. Uh, We save money, we save time, we save face, we save files on our computer, and when it's time for dessert, we save room. But when it comes to spiritual matters, most of us will tend to think of being saved as a sort of rescue, as if God in heaven has sent his son as a sort of cosmic paramedic into the world, sirens ablaze, to save the errant ones whose hearts suffer the fatal effects of sin. And this image is reasonable, since that's one of the ways that we use the word in everyday conversation. And there's no question that God saving the whole world is the greatest form or example of rescue in the universe. To be saved means to be rescued from something harmful or destructive. And to be saved in the Christian sense certainly involves a sort of rescue. But we must be careful, because when we meet this word saved in our passage today, it carries a meaning that goes beyond simply the idea of rescue. In Scripture, it includes the much fuller sense of restoration. There's a great difference between mere rescue and restoration. Imagine an antique violin, like a Stradivarius, that's worn and broken, and someone's tossed it into a dumpster. Then a master craftsman, finding the violin, restores it back to concert quality. It's one thing to pull a treasure from the trash. It's quite another to restore it to its original quality. Here's another example. You've seen birds that have been caught up in an oil spill. It's one thing to rescue an animal from an oil slick, but it's quite another to restore the animal back to its natural habitat. And in the same way, when we speak of saving the world from a pandemic, we mean much more than finding a drug that will kill the virus or a vaccine that will prevent its spread. When we speak of ending a pandemic, we long for a restoration of life back to normal again. So in the same way, in the ancient world... This word saved carried with it this idea, not just of rescue, but of restoration. When something or someone was saved, it meant that he, she, or it was restored to its original state. And on many occasions, Jesus used this word after healing someone, such as the woman who had the issue of blood, the bleeding disorder in Matthew 9, Mark 5, and Luke 8, or the leprous man who was healed in Luke 17, or the blind man in Mark 10 or Luke 18. In most of your English translations, Jesus speaks a word that is translated here as made you well, as in he will say, your faith has made you well. But the word is actually the word saved. When Jesus heals the woman from her bleeding disorder, when he restores the health of the the skin of the leprous man, when he restores the blind man's sight, in each case, he says, your faith, has saved you. That's the word that's used. Now you see the point. The word saved for Christians can mean more than just having the pathogen of sin removed. It can mean and often does refer to the process of being made right or whole again. Once there was a jailer and after surviving an earthquake and being stopped from killing himself out of fear that the prisoners had all escaped, he asks Paul and Silas, What must I do to be saved? This is in Acts 16. He was asking, how can I be made whole again? 
when Paul writes that the good news is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who has faith in Romans 1, he means the good news is the power of God to make the world right again. And when Jesus states that he came to seek and save the lost, it means he came to seek and restore our status as God's children in Luke 19. So, when you meet this word saved in our reading this morning, the image that should come to mind is more than God rescuing you. Think beyond the rescue to the restoration. To be saved means that God is making you into the person you were meant to be in the first place. Remade, restored into your original condition. And so let's take a minute to read Romans chapter 10, uh, verses 5 through 13. And this is Paul originally writing in a letter to Christians who lived in the city of Rome. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart one believes and is justified, and with a mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be, and hear that again, rescued and restored, will be saved. So according to this passage, being made right again begins with two important things. First, a confession, and then secondly, a belief, stating with conviction that Jesus is Lord and then believing with conviction that God raised him from the dead. And immediately I hear uh, two objections. The first, I can hear from those of you who have been followers of Christ for a long time, you will protest here and say that too many Christians take this passage out of context and fail to recognize that becoming a Christian involves more than just saying Jesus is Lord or believing something in your heart. What about baptism? What about repentance? What about forgiveness of sins? What about being a living sacrifice? What about the work of the Holy Spirit? And all I can say to your objection is, you're correct. In fact, it's important to remember that this passage is only a small snippet of a letter that was written from Paul to the Christians living in Rome. And it's important to remember that that letter was intended to be read first to last, chapter 1 all the way through chapter 16. And as you read through that letter, you will find every one of those very important parts of being made right again, of becoming a Christian. All of that is packed into this dense, rich, delicious letter. But in this passage, Paul reduces the good news down to a concentrated first bite. Following Christ is a complex eternal process, but it begins with the tiniest confession and the simplest of beliefs. For the Christian, 
This is where it all begins, with a confession that Jesus is Lord and a conviction in the resurrection. Now, the second objection will come from those of you who are skeptics or from those of you who are still wondering if you should become a Christian, if Jesus is worth following. You'll object to this verse on similar grounds, saying that it sounds suspiciously simple. Is Paul just selling something? Is this like a pop-up ad saying, do this thing or that thing and you'll be rich or thin or you'll be protected by, you know, from COVID? Is Paul hiding something here behind uh, a message that is made too simple, offering something that sounds too good to be true? If Christianity has anything to say about the real world, surely it involves more than just saying a magic phrase or mentally conceding to something that you hope to be true but you don't really know. At first glance, this passage may leave you feeling like God is running for office. And if you simply sign on to his platform, he'll let you into the party. Now, if that's your concern, I think you'll find it helpful, perhaps even refreshing, to know that the first people who heard this passage knew exactly what was being claimed. And for them, this was no small confession. In fact, quite the opposite. For the first 300 years, making this confession and claiming this belief guaranteed danger, persecution, discrimination, oppression, and even death. To say that Jesus is Lord and to rationally believe that God raised him from the dead was a most serious conclusion, and it still is. It has been that way from the beginning. Due to the complexity of the passage, I'm going to split the sermons on this passage into to two different sections. Today we'll ask the question, what does it mean to confess that Jesus is Lord? And then next week we'll conclude by asking, what does it really mean to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? So let's start with the first question. What does it mean to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? When you hear that term Lord, what comes to mind? If you're like most of us, two connotations of the word Lord come to mind. One of those is the idea of royalty, and the other is deity. Either your mind drifts back to the days of a monarchy with kings and knights, lords and ladies, and when you hear this phrase, Jesus is Lord, you picture Jesus depicted in a position of power, perhaps with a crown holding a scepter uh, in one hand. You may associate the term Lord, on the other hand, with religion where saying Jesus is Lord is just another way of saying that Jesus is the one that I worship. And this is not far off from how the people used the term Lord 2,000 years ago. The term first carried a generic meaning. Uh, Anyone who was the owner of a business or a leader, uh, anyone who was the master of a house was called kurios, which means Lord. In some cases, it was just a term of respect, like saying, sir, But in ancient Rome, among the people to whom this letter of Romans was originally written, the the term Lord instantly brought to mind the emperor. At the top of the hierarchy of lords was only one lord, and in Rome, that lord was Caesar. There was an inscription dated to 67 AD, near the time that this letter was written, which says, the lord of the whole world is Nero. You may remember that Nero was the tyrannical emperor at the time, and it was in that context that this passage was first written. And in this passage, 
This claim that Jesus is Lord would have been interpreted as a form of sedition. To do what Paul says here and to confess that Jesus is Lord would have been a way of saying Nero was not the ultimate authority. Every boss has a boss. Every leader has a leader. Every emperor must bend his knee to an ultimate Lord of all lords. The theologian Michael Byrd says that to say Jesus is Lord in Rome at this time was a bit like raising a glass at a Nazi dinner party in Berlin in the 1930s and proposing that Hitler was not the supreme leader, but that Jesus of Nazareth was. Perhaps this explains why, in the time of Nero, Christians were crucified, burned, and even blamed by Nero for the burning of Rome itself. This claim was a threat. But the claim goes much deeper, especially for the Jewish Christians. For them, the term Lord was a term for God. Consider the passage here from the uh, the prophet Joel. This is in Joel chapter 2, where the prophet writes, You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Now notice here that the name of God is written in small capital letters. Did you notice that? If you look in your English Bibles, you'll see that's true in your Bibles as well. This is the translator's hint to you that this word in Hebrew is not actually the word Lord. It is actually a four-letter word in Hebrew spelled yod Hey vav Hey, or loosely in English, yh W-H, sometimes pronounced Yahweh, though in reality, those four letters were never, ever pronounced. It's not unlike a four-letter word today that's not pronounced because it's vulgar. Uh, This word was never uttered, not because it was so vulgar, but because it was so holy. This is God's name. It means something like he who will be or he who exists. It's a form of the name of God uh, that Moses was told to use. You'll remember when Moses asked, who do I say sent me? God said, tell this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. So to avoid trying to write out this name of God, which was never to be pronounced, the English translators try to help you find his name in your Bible by capitalizing the letters in the word Lord. But why did they choose the term Lord to substitute for God's actual name? Well, they were just following the lead of the very first translators. When speaking Hebrew, devout Jews would substitute the term Adonai for the actual name of God. In Hebrew, Adonai means Lord. So when this passage was translated into Greek, the translators used the term Kurios, or Lord, and the English translators just followed suit. So now that you know what to look for, see if you can catch how many times the name of God, his actual name, shows up in even the following few verses from Joel. So continuing in Joel, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am, and there it is, the Lord, there's his name, your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, 
In those days, I will pour out my spirit and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Did you catch that this is the very passage Paul quoted? To show that everyone who confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord will be saved. And now you can see how serious this confession actually is. When a believer says Jesus is Lord, he or she is actually confessing Jesus is Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. You will see this reference and this conclusion woven through all the books and letters of the New Testament. John 1, for example, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with the beginning, or He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made. Or how about Colossians 1? He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he, meaning Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Or how about Hebrews 1? He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. How is it that Christians became convinced that Jesus is God, that he is in control of all reality? Well, the first Christians tended to point out two things about Jesus. First, you might say Jesus proved who he was to them by what he said, and secondly, by what he did. First, Jesus said things that only God says. From the time he was 12, he amazed the temple teachers with his answers and understanding, Luke 2. When he spoke, people were amazed because he taught with authority, as you see in Matthew 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And even the law enforcement officers who were sent to arrest Jesus returned without bringing him in because they said, no one ever spoke like this man, John 7. On one occasion, he says, Jesus says to a paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. Read that in Mark 2. Now, you and I can forgive each other's sins, but Jesus Jesus forgives this man as if Jesus himself were principally the one offended by the man's sins. Now, Now, you and I can forgive each other, but only God can forgive sins, all sins, for good. Even the scribes who knew their scriptures better than anyone else correctly said that no one can forgive sins but God alone. And Jesus agreed and asked, well, which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise up with your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Mark 2. You see the point. 
Jesus said what only God can say, and he did what only God can do. It's important to see that every miracle performed by Jesus fits this pattern. He does not perform wonders for the sake of entertainment or prestige. Every miraculous sign is an example of Jesus doing what God has been doing all along. Get this point clear. Jesus performs a miracle, and when he does so, he does not suspend the laws of nature. Quite the contrary. He shows mastery over the laws of nature. He acts precisely the way you would expect if he had the perfect working knowledge of the forces and elements of the universe from the beginning of creation. Now, some people like to search for a natural explanation of each of the miracles. Did Jesus really turn water into wine, or is there a, quote, natural explanation? Well, I hope that you can see that this is a trick question. If it's true that all things were made through him, and if it's true that he upholds the universe by the word of his power, then, of course, there's a natural explanation. He is the source of all nature, and therefore... He demonstrates mastery over the forces of all the elements of creation. That is why the first Christians rarely referred to Jesus' miracles as miracles. They referred to them as shows of power, or as John writes, they are a sign, never dazzling entertainment, never a suspension of reality. Perhaps a specific example will help drive the point home. The one miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels is the feeding of the 5,000. There's actually 5,000 men, we're told, besides women and children. Maybe 15,000 people were there. On that occasion, Jesus took five loaves of barley bread and two fish and divided it up to feed thousands of people. Now, this may be hard to believe, and there are only three explanations. One, he did not really do this, and the story's a lie. Two, He did this by suspending the laws of physics, organic chemistry, and even cooking while leaving intact the ability for people to see what was actually happening and have their fill. Or three, he demonstrated such a thorough working knowledge of all the laws of physics and chemistry and the forces of the created world that with only some barley and fish, he fed thousands of people. Now, if a person walks into the kitchen and they walk up to the cupboard and they grab a bowl and throw in some flour and a little salt, some water, maybe a little sourdough, do the kneading and shaping, let it rise, throw it in the oven and cook bread without ever referring to a recipe. And it comes out as this piping hot, nice, mouth-watering loaf of bread. You can be sure of two things. The first is that this person already knows the recipe. And secondly, that they probably made that before. That's precisely the point you are meant to catch from this account of Jesus feeding the multitude. Jesus knows the recipe, and he's done this before, since the beginning of creation, to be precise. Think about where bread comes from. Barley bread is made from barley grain. It's one of the oldest known cultivated grains used by humans for over 10,000 years. And each grain of barley falls from a stalk of barley grown in a field of barley that has grown up from seeds of barley that came from previous stalks of barley. Genetic studies show that you can trace every grain of barley back to the original seeds that fell to the ground on the third day of creation. Now, the same is true for fish. Every fish comes from the mating of two other fish. And if those two fish 
came from previous fish, then you know that each of those fish came from fish that lived before those fish and a long succession of fish that goes back to the very first fish that swam in the waters on the fifth day of creation. You see, this is how God has been feeding the world from the beginning of time. He gives us grain created from previous stalks of grain. He gives us fish created from previous generations of fish. And then suddenly a man walks into history who starts doing the same thing before eyewitnesses. If you look closely, you'll find that every recorded miracle of Jesus fits this pattern. When he healed diseases, controlled weather patterns, gave sight to the blind, repaired paralyzed nerves and muscles, even when he revived persons who had suffered cardiac and brain death, each time he demonstrated mastery over the processes that you and I call natural. To confess that Jesus is Lord is not to suspend your belief in what is real. It is to recognize who is in control of all reality, that Jesus is the incarnate God. So no wonder the writer of Hebrews would conclude that Jesus upholds the universe with a word of his power. To claim that Jesus is Lord is to acknowledge that he is in control of all reality. And that is the first step in you being made right again. Acknowledging that Jesus is the one with the power to make you right. To remake you into the person you were intended to be in the first place. So what does that mean for us? To confess that Jesus is Lord, as written in Our text this morning is to acknowledge that someone is in control. Think of all that is not right in the world. COVID-19, racial conflict, injustice, malnutrition, homelessness, not to mention the struggles that you face in your own home. Well, let's take a a moment to mention those. What is it that you struggle with? What are you facing this week? What burden do you bear? in your work, in your home, in your marriage, in your parenting, or if you're a child with your parents, uh, in your own struggle with sin, what are the burdens that you bear? You might be right to ask, is anyone in charge here? Would it help for you to know that the universe has a cause, a creator, who will not put you to shame? As Augustine once wrote, there's a cause of being, a norm in knowing, and an aim in living. Does this give you hope? To say that Jesus is Lord is to confess that there is a cause of being. Jesus it is to confess a norm in knowing. His word. And it gives your life an aim in living. Eternal life. This is why to confess that Jesus is Lord is the first tiny wedge which opens the door to you being made fully right again. The first step in being restored is to recognize and to acknowledge the living person who has the resources and authority to address your greatest problems. Now notice that I said living person. And that's what will bring us to the second part of the message next week. What does it mean to believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead? That's where we'll begin next week. But we'll conclude this week with simply an invitation that perhaps will mean more to you now that you 
can hear it coming from the real living Lord, Jesus, the Son of God and Savior of the world. To confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord is to claim, to come to the conclusion, having investigated, to come to the conclusion that Jesus is in control of all reality. And then let that have its full effect. Jesus will first earn your respect. That respect is only a few inches away from faith. And once faith is fully taken hold, then you can make the commitment. That's the signing on the dotted line. That's the baptism that is a recreation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the first step in following him, followed by the forgiveness, the remaking of life, the giving your life as a living sacrifice in following him. It's the very first step in God remaking your whole life. The first step in being saved, as written in this passage, is to come first to the conclusion and the ability to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Y-H-W-H. He is Lord. So, since he is Lord, let me allow Jesus to extend the real invitation. Perhaps his words will mean more to you now. When Jesus says, here's your invitation, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. May God bless the reading of his word, and may he bless your pursuit of finding the one who's in control of all reality. Let's stand now and sing.